begin the holiday season together. It was a time last weekend where families got together and friends came around. In our home, everybody was home from Illinois, from Michigan. Uh, and it was just great to be together, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Right, Do you like your family? <laughs> the house was full and the kids were home and that's great and all, but the highlight was that grandbaby. You old people were right about this. That really is the reason uh, you don't kill your kids. It's <laughs> our grandbaby, now uh, just turning two years old, uh, is learning words. So he's learning his colors and animals and the sounds of animals. Uh, and he's learning, starting now to count. So we're excited about this. And we, like every one of you, think he's the smartest kid in the whole world. But he has learned a word now that he has reached two years old that you're very familiar with. It's two letters, and it starts with an N. And it ends with an O. Everything you say, the answer is no. It doesn't matter. Uh, whatever you tell him not to do, he will do it. Whatever you tell him to do, he will say no. So, um, well, aside from the fact that his mother deserves this, <laughs> oh, how she deserves it. If you're younger than us, hang on. There is justice coming. I have been watching this, trying to understand why he is addicted to the power of no. Not being a psychologist, I have to rely on others, and they tell me that he is trying to establish his independence. He wants to distinguish his mind from somebody else's. And so the way that he does that is he builds a wall between your will and his, and he defends it with the word no. So I started thinking as I watched him, what if he learned the power of yes? What if he learned to discover himself not by distinguishing himself from other people's authority, but by developing himself within other people's authority? What if he learned early that his parents' mind is looking out for him it's in his best interest to say yes. But that is not what he does, do we? Some of us have developed ourselves our whole life in the context of no. No. 
It's what we're against, what we oppose. <laughs> I had a friend who said some time ago, I don't know what I'll do, he's a preacher, when I get to heaven and everything's perfect. I won't be ticked at anything. I said, you may not have to worry about it. Because everywhere you go, there you are. You will carry that with you maybe to heaven and find out heaven is a place of yes. So we were talking a few weeks ago about the power of listening to God. We said it started out by posturing ourselves in a way or putting ourselves in a position to hear what God says. After that, we must become familiar and conversant with Scripture, for that is the place where God speaks most of the time. Then we must learn to discern what God is actually saying and distinguish it between our voice and his. But the final act in the art of listening, you may remember, is obedience. And what we're talking about here in the power of yes is the power of obedience. There isn't anything that postures us for hearing God's voice in the future than obeying him in the present. So what we've done this Christmas as we get ready for Advent and go into it is we started reading the Christmas story through the lens of obedience. Have never done this before. And at first it felt a little forced or contrived, like maybe we were reading obedience into these stories. But the more we read it, we started to see that there's obedience through all of the Christmas story. Sometimes very explicit and sometimes it's implicit. It's explicit when people like Mary say, I am the Lord's servant, be it unto me as you have said. Those are words of obedience. When Joseph is told by an angel in a dream, wait for it, it's in Matthew chapter one, verse 20. The angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife. Three verses later, it says, so when he awoke, he took Mary home as his wife. That's obedience. A few nights later, while he was there, he was awakened in a dream, and the angel said to him, get up, take the child and his mother, and go into Egypt. So three verses later, he got up, took the child and his mother and went straight into Egypt. After Herod died, the angel came back and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go back to the land of Israel. Three verses later, so he got up, took the child and his mother and went back to the land of Israel. That is explicit obedience. I mean, it's stated right in the text. He did what he was told to do. Jesus himself falls in this category because he was the very nature God, yet he humbled himself and became obedient unto death. There it is. Death on a cross. God himself obeys. 
next time you think obedience lessens your authority, you think of his. In other places, it's implicit. Zechariah is told, your wife, even though she's old, is going to have a child. And when he's born, you should name him John. And now, since you don't believe me, I'm going to take away your voice. Nine months later, when Zechariah has not said a word for nine months, some of you ladies would love it if your husband had this problem. The child was born, the family was there, and they said, name him Zechariah after his daddy. Zechariah got a tablet and wrote, no, his name shall be John. There it is. The wise men are awakened in a dream. And they are told, when you go back to your country, you better use another road. So they got up and they took another route. One of the people for whom obedience is implicit are the prophets. In some ways, Advent starts with the prophets. Have you heard of them? Yes? The prophets are weird, eccentric, sometimes annoying, obsessive, focused people. They seem to be always out of touch with what's happening around them. They seem to hear voices nobody else hears, and they see things in their day that nobody else sees. So they believe things that nobody else believes. And when they say these things, they sound weird, strange. Prophets live in one generation, but they belong to a generation that could be hundreds of years in the future. And they start living today as if the things they have seen have already happened. And because nobody around them lives like that and nobody talks like that and they don't believe these things. No, no, not even religious people live like this or talk like this or believe these things. The religious people believe what everybody else believes, only they use religious language to say it. But a prophet is truly an independent thinker. He lives here, but he ain't from around here. Now, my message today is that what we need in our country right now are more prophets. My message is that we should train fewer pastors and more prophets. Make fewer disciples if we can make more of them prophets. Because we are in a time, people, when what this country needs 
is an unpractical person. As Chesterton said, when things are a little bit skewed, just a little off track, we go find a practical man to come in and fix it because practical men know how things work every day and they work it. But when things are way off kilter and far out of balance, we want to go into some hermitage and find some wild-eyed, white-haired person that almost never thinks about how things work. He wonders why we invented the thing at all. And we want to drag him out and say, what's wrong with us? And I want to argue that what our country needs right now is more people like that who live in a different time. Not one hundreds of years behind us, but one that is hundreds of years ahead of us. So you wake up tomorrow in the same job you had last Wednesday, but you belong to an era that is nothing like the world you wake up in. So over the summer, I started reading prophets. And uh, what I discovered was they have, a, they have a different mindset and they have, there's a strange pattern. Now, some of you right now, when you hear my call to be a prophet, you kind of like this because you're lonely and frustrated and introverted and sometimes annoying and weird anyway. So you're like, that baby is my calling. You don't like the establishment, so you like to speak out against it and then consider yourself a prophet. Remember a couple of things. One is that a prophet's call is based in the story of God. He is not known by what he is against. He is known by the things he sees in the future and nobody else sees. So he's not just damning the present. He is calling the present forward into the future because the future is going to happen anyway, so you better get ready. That's the calling of a prophet. A prophet believes that God is in charge of this world, not the president, not the kings. You heard it read this morning. I am the Lord. That is my name. I share my glory with no one. In Isaiah 46.10, he says, I, the Lord, will do exactly what I intend to do. The psalmist says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he wants, period. The proverb says, even the king's heart is in the Lord's hands. He bends it like a river anywhere he wants it to go. Prophets believe this. They do not believe that history is the consequence of human actions alone. They believe God's authority is responsible for all things. And they're not worried 
that somebody won't like him. They translate his authority in the context of current events. So they never say bad has happened. What kind of God does this? No, prophets say we know what kind of God he is. Now we must understand why bad has happened. Prophets believe that God has made a covenant with a certain kind of people and that he has set that people as a living community alive in the world, as we said in January, as an island of life in a sea of death. And they believe that when these people live according to Yahweh's desires and his intentions, these people flourish. But as they ignore these desires and intentions, things will fall apart. Yahweh will leave them. But because he is faithful, he will never abandon them. So once they have taken their beating, Yahweh will return. What a weird way to think. So I'd get up every morning in the summer and I'd start reading the prophets way before dawn. And then they would say, hey, come downstairs. We're all going to have breakfast together. And by the time you've had two chapters of Jeremiah, you're a little ticked. But I noticed a pattern that occurs in the prophets. And it goes like this. When God favors a people, a nation, an organization, a church, a city, a family, or even an individual, all is well in that person's life. I don't know why God favors them. Nobody does. But what happens is that person or that family or that organization becomes like a light for the rest of the world. And God is famous throughout the world because of the way that this little family lives so Ezekiel would say in chapter 36, then the world will know that I am the Lord when I establish myself as holy through you. It struck me because I thought if you want the world to see that you're holy, show them that you're holy. Not what he said. He said the world will know I'm holy when they see your holiness. That's just the way God acts. He favors people for the sake of the world. But inevitably, when a people feel favored, they're grateful for a while, 
And then they start to feel entitled. They feel like their standards are higher. They feel like they deserve this. And maybe they're a little bit better than the rest of the world. And so they start to say things and do things that are condescending. They start acting on privileges that they've had from Yahweh as though they earned them. They're self-determined, self-confident, self-absorbed. They just get self. And then there is nothing that undermines the favor of God more than pride, more than self. That will do it more than any sin you commit. It will be a sense of, I deserve this. I work hard. We're better than other people. And when this happens, things start to crumble. On the outside, it still looks like everything is going well. But on the inside, people start noticing the fissures and they start saying something. And when they say something, the entire family or nation comes down hard on them and says, you don't belong to us. You don't fit if you just can't live the dominant narrative. Eventually, things fall apart. The people start blaming other people. First it's the Egyptians, and then it's the Assyrians, and then it's the Babylonians, and then it's the Cushites, and it's the people from Damascus and Moab, and it's the prophets themselves. They don't fit here. We have to get rid of them. Only they can't. And the nation, once favored, falls into despair. Things are worse than we thought. They will never be the same. Enter the prophet. Walt Brueggemann says this, the prophet's job in every day is to speak reality against the king's propaganda. When everybody's walking around saying, Israel, love it or leave it. Israel, these colors don't run. Make Israel great again. The prophet speaks reality against the propaganda. And at first, the nation will deny it. They will resist it. They will say, yeah, we have our problems, but we are still the greatest nation 
on earth. And then when they can't deny it, they will start to blame. You know what our problem is? It's the Egyptians. It's the Assyrians. It's the Babylonians. It's the Mexicans. It's the other party. It's those liberals. It's those religious people. And the prophet will speak the second word, grief in the midst of denial. The prophet will say to his era, our problems are not someone else's problems. Our problems are our problems because Yahweh is in control of the world, not some other nation. And these consequences have been predicted long in advance. We are only now suffering them. And then, about the time the people start to hear them and sink into despair, the prophet will speak his third and final word. Hope. <laughs> In the face of despair. This is exactly what Isaiah did. The people of God were committed to their temple and to their king. But in between services, they were doing anything they wanted. And while the king was talking propaganda about how great they were, the prophet stood up early in the book and said, your services are empty. Your rituals are not even heard in the heavens. And at first, the people denied him. And then in the middle part of Isaiah, they start to blame the Egyptians and the Moabites and the Assyrians and the Babylonians. They're blaming everybody. And the prophet stood up and said, Oh, Israel, it is not time to blame it is time to weep and mourn for the people that we have become. Because just as there is nothing that will send God away faster than pride, there is nothing that will get him back faster than humility. Then, when the people we're finally in despair. The prophet said these words in Isaiah chapter 40. Let me paraphrase them for you. People, it has been a long night, 70 years of night, but it's almost over. 
The morning is starting to come. The sun is rising. Yahweh is on the way. Get things ready for Yahweh. God is coming. He is alive and active in our world. People, I believe that our country right now is somewhere in between denial and despair. Part of us wants to deny that anything is wrong, and so we run around insisting still, in spite of our problems, how great we are. But there is something deep inside the soul of our nation that thinks maybe that isn't true. And as the next few years start to confirm that, I sense the morale of our country sinking lower and lower. And now is the time for prophets to rise. Listen. Isaiah said these things 700 years before Christmas and every one of them come true. Now you this morning are on the other side of Christmas. You have the assurance that if God said it will happen, it does not matter who believes it. It will happen because God is in control of this world, not somebody else. And God has established a people for the sake of the world. And if those people live according to the desires and intentions of God, they will flourish. And then through those people, God will bring salvation to the earth. Now is the time for us to believe that story. We will have to learn the courage of being disliked. And some of you can't do that yet. The moment there is disfavor or someone is mocking and insulting you, you back down, you capitulate, you compromise because you cannot stand to think that someone out there doesn't like you. The more faithful you become to the word of Yahweh, the harder it will be for you in the world. But do not lose hope because Yahweh is in charge of the world and he has made bold promises about the ending of things. Every one of them will happen. So live now. Right now. 
like everybody will live. On that day. I said I uh, spent the summer in the prophets. I would I would find a verse every now and then amid all the darkness. And the verse would just stand out as if God was going to do something almost in defiance to the despair. And I'd write it on a post-it note and I'd stick it on the wall so that the next morning when I got up, it would be something there. And the next day I did it again and I did it again until my entire wall was covered with things that God would do. Can I read a few? (laughs) Church, there's a day coming when the mountain of the Lord will be the mountain. Solid and towering over all mountains and the nations will stream into this mountain and people from all over will run for it and they'll say come let us go to the house of the God of Jacob he'll teach us his ways so we can finally live in the way we're made he'll settle things between nations he'll make things right between people he'll turn swords into shovels and spears into spades so now listen you who know right from wrong Pay no attention to the insults. When you are mocked, don't let it get you down. Those insults and mockeries are short-lived and they come from people whose brains are full of holes. Remember, my salvation will set things right and my righteousness goes on and on and on. So loose the chains of injustice. Untie the cords of the slaves. Set the oppressed free and break every yoke. Share your food with the hungry. Provide the poor wanderer with shelter. When you see the naked, clothe them and do not turn away from your own flesh and blood. Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will come from behind you you will call on the Lord and he will say here I am he will satisfy your needs and strengthen your frame and your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up old foundations And then they will call you repairer of the broken walls. They will call you the restorer of the streets. But for now, O son of man, your countrymen are talking about you by the walls, at the doors of their houses. They come to you like they usually do. and They sit before you to hear your words, but they don't put them into practice. Indeed, to them, 
You are like one who sings love songs and you play an instrument well, for they hear your words, but they do not put them into practice. But when all of this comes true, as it surely will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. 